Our second Bible reading this morning is Psalm 48 on page 11. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God. God makes her secure forever. Selah. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's power to be at work among us as his word is preached. In Luke 24, two of Jesus' disciples say to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Father, that their experience would be ours this morning. Would the scriptures be opened to us by the Spirit of Christ? And would our hearts burn within us? Amen. One of my favorite quotes about New York City comes from E.B. White's essay, Here is New York. You may have heard me quote this before. If so, I'm sorry, not sorry for repeating myself. Here's what E.B. White says. The residents of Manhattan are, to a large extent, strangers who have pulled up stakes somewhere and come to town. That was written in 1948, but it's still true now. I'd be surprised if there's more than one native Manhattanite among us this morning. There may well be, thanks to our guests. I'm not sure, but I'd be surprised. So why do all these strangers come to town? Here's what E.B. White goes on to say. He says they come seeking sanctuary or fulfillment or some greater or lesser grail, end quote. 
the way E.B. White sees it, people look to Manhattan to provide them with something that they could not find elsewhere, some kind of fulfillment or refuge or holy grail. Well, that may or may not fit with your personal experience. But if we replace Manhattan with a different city, the new Jerusalem, then E.B. White's words do fit with every real Christian's experience. The residents of the new Jerusalem are strangers who have pulled up stakes somewhere and come to town. The point is, when God calls us to himself, he calls us to a city. Whenever God calls a person to himself, he's calling that person to come to a city, to Zion, the new Jerusalem. It's the city we sang about a moment ago. It's the city we heard about in our first Bible reading from Revelation chapter 21. And it's the city in view in our Bible passage today, Psalm 48. There's a sense in which we already belong to this city, the New Jerusalem. But it hasn't yet arrived in all its fullness. And so for that reason, it's good to learn about this city so we can prepare for the time when we will experience it in all its fullness. When that time comes, we'll be glad with every fiber of our being that we pulled up stakes to come to the city of God. Psalm 48 has two sections. The first finishes at the end of verse 8 with that word selah, a musical term, probably meaning stop singing, instrumental interlude here. And um, the second section then begins at verse 9, after that instrumental interlude. Each of those two sections presents a different benefit for the residents of God's city. And for the remainder of this sermon, we'll look at each section in turn, one residential benefit after the other. What we'll find along the way is that the whole psalm uses ancient Jerusalem as the blueprint for a future city, that better Jerusalem that hasn't yet arrived in all its fullness. You can see that blueprint function in verse 2. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Is that talking about ancient Jerusalem? Well, yes, we can easily imagine Old Testament Israelites patriotically singing those over-the-top words about their great city, rather like Alexander Hamilton and the Skyler sisters singing about New York being the greatest city in the world. But in the Bible, when you come across over-the-top language like that, it is usually there for a reason. In the final analysis, verse 2 is only true because ancient Jerusalem was God's blueprint for a better city. And that better city, the new Jerusalem, can truly claim, without any exaggeration, to be the joy of the whole earth. So this psalm has a both-and nature to it. It is about both ancient Jerusalem and the perfect new Jerusalem of the future. 
That means we'll need to do quite a bit of toggling between the past and the future, between ancient Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that's still to come. By the way, if you've been looking through the psalm to see where it mentions Jerusalem, you won't find that name, but you will find the name Zion. And in the Bible, Zion is an alternative name for Jerusalem because it was built on Mount Zion. So let's now begin with the first of our two residential benefits, confidence. That's the first of the two benefits for residents of this city, confidence, the kind of confidence you can have when your city is safe, totally secure against attack. Verse 3 says of the city, God is in her citadels. A citadel is a fortification inside a city. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. And at the end of verse 8, we're told God makes her, that's the city, secure forever. It's hard to overstate how important security was to people in the ancient world. It was a world of walled cities and strongholds and watchtowers. Unfortunately for Israel, its geographical position made it vulnerable to attack. You can see that by looking at your right hand. If you put out your right hand, palm down with your thumb stretched out, it will give you a convenient map of Bible territory, biblical lands. That um, empty space here between thumb and forefinger, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, your thumbnail is Egypt. And um, these uh, fingers are Assyria. And then this, this fleshy bit between your thumb and your fingers, that's Israel. There, the fleshy bit there. So you can see from looking at the, by the way, over here is um, mainly desert to the east of Israel. So you can see from looking at that map on your hand that Israel was a tasty looking morsel for Egypt to attack and for Assyria to come down and attack and plunder. Later on when Babylon took over from Assyria in the north where your fingers are and uh, it was the superpower of that region, the same thing happened. Israel was a tasty morsel attacked and plundered by the Babylonians. So your hand gives you the idea. Israel was vulnerable to attack from the south and from the north. And the best hope for Israelites for surviving those attacks was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a walled city, a fortified city on a mountaintop. Whenever the land was invaded, the people could rush to Jerusalem and get behind its walls they could treat it as their refuge. In verses 4 through 7, there's an example of Jerusalem carrying out its refuge role just as it was supposed to do. I'll read from verse 4. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her, that's Jerusalem, and were astounded. They fled in terror. Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. There's a moment in Israel's history that has a good fit with those verses. In the time of Hezekiah, the Assyrians invaded Israel from the north, from your fingers, 
And because they were a superpower at the time, their army included multiple kings, just as it says in verse 4, when the kings joined forces. They got as far as the outskirts of Jerusalem, but no further. They couldn't invade the city itself, because according to 2 Kings chapter 19, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. When the remaining survivors woke up in the morning, 2 Kings 19 says they saw all the dead bodies. In the words of verse 7, the Assyrians were destroyed like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. Those who remained were seized with trembling, just as it says in verse 6, and fled in terror, as it says in verse 5. So there was at least one episode in Israel's history when Jerusalem provided the kind of refuge for the people that it was supposed to provide. That incident in Jerusalem's history demonstrated the truth of verse 3. God is in her citadels. It was God who won that victory, who protected the people. He has shown himself to be her fortress, verse 3 continues. And that incident also demonstrated the truth of verse 8. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. You can imagine the residents of Jerusalem saying that after the Assyrians fled and went back north. But Jerusalem's history also placed a gigantic question mark over verse 3 and verse 8. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and his army was not destroyed like ships of Tarshish. He did not flee in terror. There was no trembling. According to 2 Kings 25, Nebuchadnezzar's army set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. They also broke down the walls around the city. Even before that particularly huge question mark over verse 3 and over verse 8, there were other episodes placing similar question marks over those verses. Some 350 years before Nebuchadnezzar, Shishak, king of Egypt, had attacked Jerusalem, and he also did not flee in terror. Judging by 1 Kings 14, Shishak sauntered back to Egypt, carrying abundant treasures, plundered from the temple of God and the palace of the king. It was Similar, a century after Shishak, when King Hazael of Aram attacked Jerusalem. Once again, instead of retreating fearfully, he left loaded down with Jerusalem's treasures. You can read about that in 2 Kings 12. So the ancient city of Jerusalem has both a good fit and a bad fit with Psalm 48, with what it says about the security of God's city. Ancient Jerusalem did offer extraordinary God-given security. God showed that he could do it. Think of all those Assyrians, dead in their tents, 185,000, we're told in 2 Kings 19. But ancient Jerusalem 
didn't offer that kind of security in a lasting or perfect way. So when believers sang Psalm 48 in Old Testament times, they would have been compelled to set their hearts on a better city still to come, a better Jerusalem. And if they had their theological hats on, they would have figured out that for that better city to come, God would have to solve the problem of his people's sin. Why was Shishak, Hazael, and Nebuchadnezzar successful when they attacked Jerusalem? The Bible tells us very plainly it was because of Israel's sin. On each of those three occasions when Jerusalem was successfully attacked, God himself made Jerusalem vulnerable because the Israelites had rebelled against him. So for Israel to be secure, eternally secure, perfectly secure, God would need to solve the problem of his people's sin. And we'll come back to that later. But before we get to that, we'll look at the second section of the psalm, verse 9 to the end. The first residential benefit was confidence. In the second section, the benefit offered is companionship, relationship with God himself. Please look down with me to verse 9 which says, within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Security is all well and good, but it's possible to be secure and yet dissatisfied with your life. You can have stainless steel padlocks and high-tech security cameras and burglar alarms, and yet sitting in the midst of all that security you can ask yourself, why is my life worth protecting? What am I here for? What's the point of it all? Those questions are answered by the second residential benefit of God's city, the companionship he himself offers. The wonder of relationship with God changes everything. In verse 9, the psalm singers praise God for his unfailing love, his steadfast love. Now, just as confidence was a benefit offered by God through the city, in the same way, companionship is also offered through the city. Where is that meditation on God's love happening? According to verse 9, it's happening in the temple in Jerusalem. That was where God dwelt in Old Testament times. At that time in history, you could get closer to God by going to Jerusalem. If Google Maps had existed, Google Maps would have been able to bring people closer to God. You could have typed God into the destination slot in Google Maps then entered your starting point, and Google Maps, if it had existed, would have told you the best route to take to get to God. At that time in salvation history, a physical journey from A to B, from a starting point to the city of Jerusalem, that physical journey brought a person closer to God because he dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem. It seems to me, you might disagree, it seems to me that modern Western Christians find it a little hard to get on board 
with the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem, with the whole idea of it. It seems alien to us, a big building where animal sacrifices were made and a curtain held God's people back from the ark, a gold-covered wooden box in which God himself was somehow present. We're not used to any of those things. They're not part of our experience, and so we struggle to see the temple's attraction. To see the temple's appeal, we really need to think about how bad things were at the start of the history of salvation, when God expelled the first humans from the Garden of Eden. At that point in time, God was thrusting humanity away from his presence. In the Garden of Eden, God had walked and talked with humanity, but when Adam and Eve rejected God's good rule by eating from the only forbidden tree in the whole garden, God could not dwell with them any longer. Genesis 3 says that God banished mankind from the garden and set up a flaming sword flashing back and forth to stop mankind getting in to the garden. That's humanity's bleak situation at the start of salvation history. But in his great love, God didn't leave things there. In the time of Moses, when the Israelites left Egypt, God told his people to construct a tent, the tabernacle, and God himself dwelt in that tabernacle. In the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, every detail of the tabernacle is carefully catalogued. The anointing oil, the scarlet yarn, the acacia wood, rams, skins, bronze, tent pegs, and so much else. All of those details matter. They all have to be recorded. They're all precious because God is going to dwell with his people once again for the first time since the Garden of Eden. What a demonstration of his love. He showed that he wanted to be with his people by dwelling among them in the tabernacle. The temple was the logical next step after the tabernacle. Once Israel was settled in the promised land, it made sense for God to settle down as well. He no longer needed that portable tent. So the Israelites built a temple in Jerusalem for God to dwell in. That temple made Jerusalem more like the Garden of Eden than anywhere else on earth because God dwelt there. The temple served as a solid physical reminder of God's love. He wanted to be with his people. The temple proved it. The temple demonstrated his love. And yet once again, Israel's history put a major question mark over the companionship offered by God through the temple. Ezekiel, who prophesied just before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Ezekiel saw a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. God didn't dwell there anymore. If you traveled from wherever you were to Jerusalem, you wouldn't get closer to God because his glory had left. Shortly after Ezekiel saw that vision, the temple was destroyed and the people were sent into exile. It was like being banished from Eden all over again. During those years in exile in Babylon, the people couldn't sing Psalm 48, verse 9, in the same way that they had sung it before. They couldn't meditate on God's unfailing love in the temple. 
They were over in Babylon in exile. For those words to be lastingly true, God would have to solve the problem of his people's sin. Their sin caused the exile. And if that could happen once in the history of God's people, who's to say it couldn't happen over and over and over again? Only a solution, a lasting solution to the problem of sin could guarantee both the refuge section of Psalm 48 and the relationship section of Psalm 48. That solution was brought by Jesus, the Son of God. To use words from our second song today, his great descent has made us whole. The Son of God came down from heaven to fix the problem we couldn't fix ourselves. He took our sin upon himself and received the penalty for it when he died on the cross. Anyone who trusts in him, and if you haven't yet done that, you could do it today, you could do it now. Anyone who trusts in him who was crucified but then raised from the dead is made fit for God's eternal city. That is what Jesus has achieved for us through his death and resurrection. If we trust in him, we are made fit for God's eternal city, a place of security where we will enjoy relationship with him forever. In our own period of salvation history, there is no earthly city offering what Jerusalem offers in this psalm, Psalm 48. New York, London, modern Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, Paris, Cape Town, Singapore, Beijing, Sydney. They're all great cities, but none of them offer what Jerusalem offers in this psalm. According to the New Testament, the only city offering these two residential benefits, confidence and companionship, is a heavenly city, a city with God. And according to the New Testament, we are currently dwelling there. We're in it. You have come. It says in Hebrews 12, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, verse 22. There is a very true sense in which we're already there. We're residents of that heavenly city in Christ who is seated there. We're secure in God's sight. He is watching over us. Nothing will happen to us that he hasn't already planned. And we can also enjoy relationship with God now, thanks to Jesus. We can talk to him. He talks to us in his word, the Bible. He dwells within us by his spirit. We can have relationship with God now. But despite the confidence and companionship we currently enjoy, we do still have tears. One day in the future, that heavenly city will come down and be established on earth, just as we heard in our first Bible reading from Revelation 21. From that time onwards, there will be security without tears. We'll no longer hear of Nigerian Christians or Ukrainian 
Christians being forced from their homes by an enemy attack. We'll no longer hear of North Korean Christians being captured in a government raid and taken away from their homes. God is sovereign now over all of that suffering. His control can be trusted by those Christians, but there are tears. There are tears involved. Those tears will be wiped away when the new Jerusalem comes. On that day, our relationship with God will also have a new perfection, a tearless perfection. Now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but then we shall see face to face. On that day, we'll be able to sing the words of verse 8 as they've never been sung before. As we have heard, so have we seen. We'll see God face to face. Verses 12 and 13 of Psalm 48 invite us to contemplate the ancient city of Jerusalem. Those verses invite us to think about its role in Old Testament times. And as we do that, it will stir up our anticipation for the new Jerusalem. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. As we've seen Jerusalem in Old Testament times, points forward to the new Jerusalem. It provides the blueprint that the new Jerusalem fulfills. So those verses invite us to think about the old Jerusalem to stir up anticipation for the new Jerusalem that will fulfill that blueprint. Someone once said to me that in life we hope by hoping. In other words, the person who's really hoping for something will fill their mind with thoughts of that future thing they're hoping for. We hope by hoping. We're to do that with the new Jerusalem. And we're not to keep those thoughts to ourselves. Verse 13 tells us to share them with the next generation. That is where this psalm could have ended, there at verse 13. But it doesn't end there. It ends with a riddle. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. It's a riddle because up to now, everything in the psalm has been associated with a strong, stable city that isn't going anywhere. But verse 14 speaks of God as our guide. And guides don't stay in one place they go with you as you travel so why does psalm 48 this strong stable in one place city psalm end with god guiding us leading us surely it's another example of the psalm saying we're not there yet the city without tears hasn't yet arrived we need god to guide us all the way there. And he will guide us, even to the end, because he wants us, his people, to be there with him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great descent of your Son, Jesus Christ, which has made us whole. Thank you for solving the problem of our sin, which kept taking away the security of your people and their companionship with you. You solved the problem through your son Jesus, through his death and resurrection. We praise you for that solution. Thank you that he fixed the problem. And we claim the promise of that final verse now, Father. We look to you to be our guide. Please, would you guide us all the way to the new Jerusalem? And if there is anyone listening who is not yet trusting in Jesus, please soften their heart to him. Would they put their hope and trust in him so that you might guide them also to your wonderful new Jerusalem. Amen.